So we've been, the last few weeks we've been going through the, um, basically our, our vision as a church, which has three parts. There they are. Thank you, Stephen. We want to we wanna build our church. We want to reach our community. And this week I'm going to talk to you about the last bit. We want to impact our world. And as, as we exist as a church of God, that's, that's kind of how we want to approach everything we do, really. How we conduct ourselves in the community, in Teesside. We want to bring people through those doors, make them feel welcome, make them feel included. We want to encourage them, raise them up, train them, help them, and get them into service where they get to serve God and, and each other. And we build this community of, of love and trust and encouragement. And naturally by doing that, the last part I want to talk about today is how we're going to impact our world. So please turn to Nehemiah chapter 6. I say turn or get the app up on your phone if you've got it. If you don't, it, the words are going to come up on the screen anyway. But while you find it, I just want to give you a bit of a recap of Nehemiah's story. Basically, Nehemiah was a Jew, and he was exiled in Babylon, which means that the Babylonians or the Persians had come into uh, Israel, taken over the place, captured a load of them, and dragged them back to Babylon, and they were living there. And I think Nehemiah was a few generations later where the people had been living in Babylon for a very long time, and he was born there and raised there, but was still of Jewish descent. And he hears that there's people have started going back to Jerusalem to repopulate the place. And actually, the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, has decided. He had a dream one night and, and declared that the God of Israel was God. And he was dead keen for people to go back to Israel and resettle there. So that they could re- and Ezra was sent to rebuild the temple. And this is where we pick up the story with Nehemiah, that we hear that he, he hears about the people who've returned to Jerusalem. And he's so encouraged by it, but he hears about the persecution in the and the attacks that are coming from the locals around Jerusalem, trying to stop the work that's going on there. And Nehemiah's heart is burning for these people. And he can't do anything but go to the king and say, please send me back. I've got abilities, I've got skills. Nehemiah was a fantastic leader, a great practical leader. And the king says, go, take all this stuff for you. Here's a load of money, here's a load of supplies. Go and rebuild the walls so you can defend yourselves and settle there. And we've read about up to the point where the walls are getting built and people are trying to fight off the enemies while they're getting attacked, while they're building. Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 15 says this. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. Nehemiah has done it. It's been tough. It's been scary. It's been hard work, physically hard work. It's been emotionally draining. A lot of pressure on Nehemiah. And in this fantastic verse, the wall was completed. The work was completed. And the people all around, verse 16, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. That is key. Remember that. The people around saw God at work in their hard work. Isn't that amazing? Something as practical as putting brick on brick and the people around couldn't help but deny that the only way they've achieved this is with the help of a a living God they didn't even believe in. 
Isn't that amazing? But that's not quite the end of Nehemiah's story. See, we're only just over halfway through the book here. There was loads of other stuff that had to go on. And Nehemiah was set as governor over the area by Artaxerxes. And very little else was actually built. All the people were living in temporary shelters and were just living on the streets and stuff. And thousands and thousands of Jews were coming back to Jerusalem every week to settle there and live there and rebuild their lives where God had asked them to be. All the way back from when Joshua had taken them across the river. There's an order to doing things, isn't there? We heard about Ezra rebuilding the temple, and then the walls getting rebuilt. And then the people started to build their lives, started to build houses, and started to settle there. Because there's an order to doing things. How can we possibly put the roof on before we've laid the foundations? And those three vision statements that we have there, that's the order we want to see things happening. As people come through those doors, as we've been out in the community working with them, we want to build our church first. We want to see people flood through those doors to come and meet with a living God. But there's no point in them coming through those doors if God's not here. We want, to imp- we want to reach our community. You guys, we want to encourage you. We want to build you up. We want to get you involved. We want you to feel part of this. We want you to feel loved and encouraged. And then we want to impact our world with the work that's going on here. And by the fact that Jesus is alive and we're living out a way that demonstrates that in a very clear and tangible way. So what what do we mean by impact? What are we actually going to do? What are we going to do to achieve this? And I want to talk about two things this morning. Firstly, what does it mean to us personally? What does it mean to us as individuals in a relationship with God? And secondly, what does it mean to us collectively as a church body working together? I'm going to ask a lot of questions this morning. I'm probably not going to give you any answers because I, I can't answer your questions for you. You've got to answer them yourselves. Where do you go to get fed? Spiritually, personally. And what do you do to feed others? You need both. I think you need both in your life to reach your potential. So all well and good receiving all the time. Coming here on a Sunday morning and listening to the words and singing the words but not actually doing anything with it. You're only half fulfilled. Imagine, imagine you're like a water butt. <laughs> Bear with me. And if you don't know what a water butt is, it's basically a big barrel that collects rainwater. And then when it's dry, you use the water inside to water your garden. So water comes on, falls on the roof, flows in the top of it, and it feeds this water butt and it fills up. And when the weather's dry, you open the tap on the bottom and it lets the water out and it waters your garden. That water butt is no use whatsoever if it's not plumbed in at either end. If it's not filling with water, there's nothing to water the garden with. And if it doesn't come out the bottom, it just goes stagnant. And it's absolutely useless. It's just a storage container for water. I read a fantastic sermon the other day about Moses. Now Moses is one of the most key people in in the story of the Israelites. He's one of probably five people that they would celebrate as saying that they, he is absolutely fundamental to our, our faith. He was descended from Abraham directly. And then he, as he was born, Pharaoh decided he was going to kill. He was born into slavery. Pharaoh decided he was going to kill all of the babies in Israel, in, of the Israelites who were living as slaves in Egypt at the time. 
So his very birth, he was born into controversy and turmoil. And his mum was so scared of his life that she put him in a wicker basket and floated him off down the river to save him. And he was picked up by Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh raised him as, as her own son. And as he grew up, he saw the injustice that was going on of his people being treated by the Egyptians. And he intervened one day and he, he accidentally killed someone. And then he was terrified for his life and he fled. And he flees Egypt and he goes off to Midian where he meets, meets this sheep farmer, marries his daughter. And he's basically living as a sheep farmer. And God intervenes in his life one day in this absolute turning point in his life and says, you Moses, you are going to free my people from slavery. And Moses is up a mountain and he sees this burning bush. God meets him face to face. And Moses says, I don't think so, God, that's not me. No, no thanks. If I was standing face to face with God, I like to think that maybe I'd say, oh, yeah, God, me and you, yeah, what a team, we're going to go for it. Yeah, I'll do whatever you tell me to. Moses, what a coward. King of excuses. Says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go out to Pharaoh and get the Israelites out of Egypt? He was brilliant at excuses. I can't go, who am I? What if I get there? And they say, well, who's God? I don't know who you're talking about. I'm not your man. Don't send me. Send someone else. I'm a runaway. I'm a coward. I've had this life of turmoil and I'm a nobody. God says, I don't care about all that. Stop running from your problems and start running towards them because I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to give you the tools you need to succeed. God made you. He knows how many hairs are on your head. Do you not think he knows exactly what you are and aren't capable of? Sometimes maybe God's asking you to do something that you don't want to do. And the only reason he's asking you to do something is to show you that you can. Sometimes we hear God say, maybe you should go and do this. And you think, oh, I'm not doing that. I don't want to do that. Or I'm scared. Or I'm... I'm not good enough. Or oh, that person over there is better at it than I am. Let them do it. I look at all of you here this morning, the ones who managed to remember that the clocks went forwards. I see a world of potential, an absolute sea of ability. Some of it has reached its potential, some of it hasn't. Isn't that exciting that there's this whole thing inside of each one of us that we could, we're living here and God's saying, Maybe take a step and live here. Or maybe saying, take a leap, jump off the cliff and live here. How many of us could honestly say we're living to our potential? I'm not. Absolutely not. I'm a complete train wreck most of the time. But it doesn't mean that God's given up on me. It doesn't mean that I'm a write-off. It doesn't mean that I'm not good enough and God says, right, well, you've had your chance, so there you go. Two tools the devil will use to trick you our fear and inadequacy. Those are the two of the most powerful things he will use. He will scare you into not doing something, either because you think you're not good enough or because you're worried about what people are going to say or you're scared you're going to fail. And he will make you feel like you're not good enough, like you don't deserve it or you haven't got the skills and talents to do it. And that's the devil speaking in your ear and saying, just, you know what, just don't do it. 
God would rather see you try and fail. We hear in the parable of the talents that the rich master gave three people some money and said, do something with it. I'm going to go away, I'm going to come back, and I want to see you've done something with it. And the first two make more money, and the, the third one buries it, doesn't even try. He's scared of trying, terrified of it. He's so scared of what might happen if he fails. He doesn't do anything with it, he buries it. The master's furious because he didn't at least give it a go. None of us can deny that God has given us abilities, skills. It doesn't matter what other people think of them. All of us are good at something. All of us are passionate about something. All of us want to see something change. And those are the areas where God wants us to invest our energy. I'm going to give you permission this morning to serve where you're passionate, serve where your talents lie. No one wants to ram you in the wrong shaped hole because that's not what God wants of you. God has given you a specific set of abilities that allow you to provide a ministry that no one else can. That is why we are all individuals. But this doesn't have to be a massive scary thing. If you want to be a worship leader, you're not going to be given the the main slot at Soul Survivor day one. No one's going to say, right, there's a guitar, there's a lot of music, away you go. Take baby steps. Approach it slowly. God doesn't want to throw you into a situation you're not cut out for. It comes with experience, it comes with time. We just need to learn to be patient sometimes. Sometimes we think, oh, I'm not happy with the injustice. I'm not happy with seeing homeless people on the street. You know what, I'm going to set up an organization that's going to completely eradicate homelessness. That doesn't happen. Go and talk to one homeless guy one day for two minutes. Buy him a coffee. Start there. The chances are something you want to do or you want to see happen, there's probably someone here already doing it or in another church or somewhere. Go and talk to them about it. Go and learn from them. Go and talk to them. Ask them questions. Go and work with them. Watch them work. Learn from them and be humble enough to be taught and to learn. We don't need all the answers. We just need a heart to serve. And that's the first step. And then we need to admit it and do something about it. That's the second step. But what's it going to cost you? Hopefully, it's only going to cost you time and energy. But I very much doubt it. Unfortunately, it's probably going to cost you more than that. Some of you, it may cost you money. Some of it, it may cost you a lot more. And it hurts. But is it worth it? Is it worth it? Of course it's worth it. I think the fundamental thing to remember here is it's it's all about mindset. If we approach things with the right mindset, humility, doing things for the right reasons with joy, We change the way we start to measure our success. Talking to one homeless man for five minutes and buying him a coffee is not even going to scratch the surface of homelessness. But if you're doing it with love, you're making a difference to that man's life. And in that, it has value. And then it's worth it. And I'll come back to that in a minute. Before I move on, I, want, I just want to say thank you to all of the people here who serve in one way or another. I know Elijah said it a few weeks ago, 
you have no idea how much of an encouragement personally you are to me and all the other people and, and another stuff that wouldn't happen here without the people who do step up and serve. All loads of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that people never even see. Thank you. Thank you so much for everything you do. Honestly, I mean that. Your work glorifies God. I also want to say thank you to the people who are married to those people or who have kids who serve. Because in your sacrifice, those other people are allowed to serve. And I apologize that that very rarely goes it very often goes unsaid. And I'm sorry for that. But you are noticed and it doesn't, it doesn't go unnoticed. And we thank you for giving time with your partners so that they may come and serve. So what about us, us as a collectively, as a church? I want to read from Matthew chapter 5 from... Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, verse 13 to verse 16. It should come up on, on the screen. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a ball. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What the church needs is a body of people, just like I've just talked about, serving in Loads of different areas, areas that they're passionate about and gifted in for the right reasons, with joy and with love and with humility. And in doing that, it can't help but be a beacon of light. A light can't hide itself. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. If we live lives as beacons, when we come together, this place in turn will be a beacon. God wants to see a community of people living salty lives. He wants a community of people who can't help but let their light shine. That's what's going to make a difference. That's what's going to bring an impact. We don't just want to make a difference that's going to die like a weak flame. This life that we've all, or most of us, or some of us, maybe none of us, have started the journey on of, you know what, Jesus, this is it. We're living for you. That's not just of this world. That's an eternal thing. That's going to make a difference for eternity. We don't want this difference that we make on this earth just to be a scratch in the surface. We want to make a dent, an impact. That's why we didn't say, you know, stroke the world. Or make a little scratch in the surface of the world. We want to impact the world. We want to be like, like a meteor hitting the surface of a planet and blowing a massive crater in it. That's what we want here. Anything else is half-hearted. We don't want to do things and approach them like, you know what? That'll do. That's, 
I've given half my energy and my time. That, that's enough. Jesus died on a cross. Is it not worth it that we lay down on ourselves and we are willing to sacrifice a little compared to what he gave up? He gave up a seat in heaven that we may be right, may be made right for our own sins. I think it's worth it. I think it's worth at least a baby step. Is it not? It's pretty hard to justify saying, well, you went through all that, God, so I might be okay, but you know what? I'm a little bit scared of being in front of people, so I'm not going to preach on Sunday. I'm not even the best preacher in my family, and here I am. And I'm not even writing thin off, so I might even be number three. <laughs> this stuff's hard. Costs. But we do it anyway, because Jesus died on the cross, and he loves us, and we love him back. We want to make a difference, don't we? And we may have no idea about the long-term implications of what we do. You may have heard of the butterfly effect, or throwing a stone and it was still pond and watch the ripples spread out. You have no idea what God can do with that stone you throw in a pond. Billy Graham was saved by a guy. He was a driver, basically. And someone said, can you drive us all to church on Sunday morning? He went, yeah, go on then. And he sat at the back one Sunday morning and thought, Flippin' this is for me. That guy who invited him to church, all he did was say, can you drive us there? And he walked in by chance. And the thousands of people who have been saved as a result of that would never have happened if that stone hadn't gone in that pond. God's not asking you to preach to 100,000 people. He's not asking you to do anything out of this world. He's just asking you to do what he's asking you to do. Do it. See what happens. What's the worst that can happen? You fall flat on your face. So what? It's embarrassing. Oh, awful. It's hard, isn't it? To get over ourselves, our, our human hang-ups, and look at it from a heavenly perspective. And God's saying, but this is eternal. You flip right over the page from where I read. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We have an eternity with God. And we get so hung up on this little bit that it's this life. He's saying, shift your perspective to this, the eternal bit. That's how you were created to be. You're going to live forever in heaven. And you've got 70 years here, perhaps. Look at, all, look at the legacy of Nehemiah. Jerusalem is still standing today. And about 400 years after Nehemiah built the walls, they were knocked down so Jerusalem could grow. And they were built again, and they were built again. And it's massive, sprawling place. And it's changed hands a few times. Yeah, there's a lot of controversy over whose it is now. But you can go there, you can walk around it. You can see the places Jesus preached and Jesus walked. You can see the hill on which he was crucified. You can go and sit in the garden where he prayed before that happened. The legacy of Nehemiah is that Jerusalem is still there. That's the impact that his life had. Because he said to God, I will. Look around you. This church has been through some tough times. I'll admit that. But look at us. We're still here. 
Has it been worth it? Of course it's been worth it. Definitely. Because if, when it was tough, we threw in the towel and said, you know what, God, this is hard work. I don't want to do this anymore. We wouldn't be here this morning. Some people might not even be saved. Isn't that a tragedy? So good that we get to say, you know what, when it was tough, I stuck it out. I dug in and I got on with it. And hopefully in 2,000 years' time, this church will still be here. People will still be worshipping Jesus here. And the amount of people who have been saved here will be so big that they'll need 10 more churches. And the legacy of that and the ripples from people speaking into other people's lives will spread right across the UK or Teesside or the world. Who knows? But it's worth it when it gets tough. It's difficult to say what makes a church a success. And as I close, I want to invite the band back up to, to close it out. But how, do we, how do we measure success of what we do here? It certainly doesn't come down to how many people are here. I would far rather have five people who are absolutely switched on for God and serving with all they've got and living lives that demonstrate that than 100,000 people who just turn up on a Sunday morning in mediocrity. Because I know which group of people is going to make the most difference. A tangible difference that's actually going to mean something. But I do think that growth is a very good indicator of life. We want to build our church. I think a community that is engaged, a large proportion of us serving in the work that we do, giving their time and energy and their money, people involved in community groups, loving one another, is a very good indicator of health. We want to reach our community. And if those two things are happening anyway, with the right attitude and the right mindset, doing things out of love and humility, we can't help but impact our world. Thank you.